We praise you, O Lord, the God of our ancestors. May your glorious holy name be held in honor and reverence forever. May you be praised as you sit on your royal throne. May hymns be sung to your glory forever. May you be praised in the dome of the heavens. May hymns be sung to your glory forever. Praise the Lord, all creation. Sing His praise and honor Him forever. Praise the Lord, skies above. Sing His praise and honor Him forever. Praise the Lord, all His angels. Sing His praise and and honor Him forever. Praise the Lord, all waters above the sky. Sing His praise and honor Him forever. Praise the Lord, all heavenly powers. Sing His praise and honor Him forever. Praise the Lord, sun and moon. Sing His praise and honor Him forever. Praise the Lord, all winds. Sing His praise and honor Him forever. Praise the Lord, fire and heat. Sing His praise and honor Him forever. Praise the Lord, mountains and hills. Sing His praise and honor Him forever. Praise the Lord, everything that grows. Sing His praise and honor Him forever. Praise the Lord, whales and sea creatures. Sing His praise and honor Him forever. Praise the Lord, all birds. Sing His praise and honor Him forever. Praise the Lord, all cattle and wild animals. Sing His praise and honor Him forever. Praise the Lord, all people on earth. Sing His praise and honor Him forever. Praise the Lord, all faithful people. Sing His praise and honor Him forever. Praise the Lord, all who are humble and holy. Sing His praise and honor Him forever. For You, Lord, have rescued us from the penalty of death and saved us from the power of death. You have brought us out from the burning furnace and saved us from the fire. We give thanks to You, O Lord, for You are good and Your mercy lasts forever. Praise the Lord, all who worship Him. Sing praise to the God of gods and give Him thanks for His mercy lasts forever. Amen. I also want to read from Peter's first epistle, chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and exiles, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. And also from chapter 4, beginning in verse 12, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we ask now for Your blessing and Your power to rest upon Your Word, that You might work through the Word as it has been read and is being preached. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. The Southern Baptist leader, Russell Moore, tells a story about growing up and going to college in Mississippi. Uh, He had a friend who was an atheist. Of course, there were not many atheists uh, in Mississippi uh, as he was growing up and going to college. And, of course, he and his friend would debate. They would debate all different kinds of things, the existence of God and the meaning of life and other big issues. And one day his friend called him and 
said, Russell, I need you to help me find a Southern Baptist church, but not one that's, you know, too Southern Baptist-y. And uh, Russell Moore said, well, what happened? Have you become a Christian? And his friend said, no, certainly not. Uh, but I had decided to go into politics. And uh, I realized that there are more Southern Baptists than anything else around here. And I know I have no chance of getting elected in the state of Mississippi unless I am a Southern Baptist. And so just help me find a Southern Baptist church I can go to that won't freak me out too much. Well, Moore points out that uh, while his friend was unusual in his honesty, he wasn't necessarily unusual in his strategy. Uh, I'm not saying that an atheist could be elected to public office in the state of Mississippi right now. I'm not sure about that. But I do know that Orthodox faithful Christianity doesn't have the same standing that it used to. See, things are changing, changing all around us. For much of American history, especially in the South, it has been assumed that to be a good American is to be a Christian. To be a good American, you must be a Christian. To be a Southerner, you must be a Christian. Christian faith was considered normal, uh, a, a sort of built-in feature of American life. Being a Christian was part of being a good citizen. The normal American citizen identified as a Christian. Especially this has been true in the South. Uh, now Flannery O'Connor once said that while the South may not be Christ-centered, she is certainly Christ-haunted. Uh, and that may be a good way to think about it. We're not Christ-centered. We are Christ-haunted. The ghost of Christ stalks us. But even that memory of Christ is fading in the South. Uh, it's less and less the case each Year. In fact, I've found this just in the 10 plus years that I've been in Alabama. I, I see now a lot more people who are openly non-Christian or even anti-Christian in our city and in our state. People have no connection to a church, don't even pretend to have a connection to the church, whereas a generation ago they would have. They don't have a connection to a church and they don't want a connection to the church. Now, here's another anecdote for you going back a little bit further. Uh, the Austrian-born economist Peter Drucker moved to New York City in the 1940s. Drucker would go on to become a famous uh, economist and business management guru. Uh, he moved to New York in the 1940s to teach at New York University. And he wanted to take out a mortgage to buy a house. And so he went down to the bank. And the banker asked him for a reference from a pastor, priest, or rabbi before he would loan him money. You know, here's this college professor being asked for a reference from a pastor, priest, or rabbi. He asked the banker why. And the banker said, well, we would never loan money to someone who isn't religious. Now, I don't think you have to have a reference from a pastor, priest, or rabbi to borrow money in New York City today. But you just rewind a generation to the 1940s, and there it is. Things have changed things are changing rapidly in America. Christians used to be in ascendancy. We had influence. We had cultural power. We were part of a moral and religious majority. Christians felt quite at home in this country. The church was a respected and influential institution. I think it's safe to say that's no longer the case. Just consider a few events from this past summer. Let me just review a few of the highlights. The Supreme Court ruled in favor of same-sex marriage, contradicting biblical teaching about marriage. 
and making same-sex marriage the law of the land in all 50 states. This brings with it, you know, this redefinition of marriage is not only problematic in itself, but it brings with it grave concerns about the status of religious liberty in our country. And it's not just right-wing fanatics who are saying this, it was actually dissenting Supreme Court justices who expressed concern about what this decision would do to religious liberty in the United States. As far as homosexuality is concerned, what was once condemned is now celebrated. What was once celebrated is now condemned. And those who won't celebrate are condemned. That's where we find ourselves. Or consider one-time Olympic hero Bruce Jenner, who spent $4 million on surgeries and chemicals to reinvent himself as Caitlin and has been acclaimed as a hero with magazine covers, special segments and, and TV shows. Uh, he, he won ESPN's Courage Award. Essentially, he has mainstreamed transgenderism. Go back a few years, nobody even knew what transgenderism was. Now it's mainstream. Thanks to a very clever sting operation, we have learned what goes on behind the scenes at Planned Parenthood. Planned Parenthood not only performs thousands of abortions, which is bad enough, murder of the innocent in the womb, but now we find they are selling off the baby parts to the highest bidder, uh, perhaps engaging in illegal activities. This kind of barbarism is going on in our nation all the time. And now we know about it. You could say it's been a rough summer for Christians. It's clear we have entered into a new phase in the history of our country. We are now a largely de-Christianized culture. Again, it used to be that while Americans may not have had Christian hearts, they at least had Christian consciences. That's no longer the case. Now, I don't think that means the church in America is dying. Far from it. But it does mean that the church has fewer allies in the culture. It means the church faces new pressures. No longer can the church play the role as a kind of national chaplain. Rather, we have to play the role of missionaries. A changing America means our role has changed. We can't rely on a moral majority any longer. We must learn to function as a missional minority. You know, the church's relationship to her host culture is always changing. It's dynamic and fluid, not fixed and static. And so, for example, if you were living in John Calvin's Geneva in the 1550s, you probably wouldn't feel a whole lot of tension between the church you belong to and the world around you. Sure, there were still things in the city that needed reforming and even things in the church that needed reforming, as there always are. But there wasn't a whole lot of tension between your membership in the church, and your citizenship in the city. But if you were to go to China today, or especially if you were to go to the Middle East, obviously there is a whole lot of tension. In fact, in some cases, a complete contradiction between church membership and national citizenship. There's this great tension between living in the church and living in the culture. Now, thankfully, Scripture gives us all kinds of guidance in these matters. We're not left to our own devices. Scripture addresses situations just like the one in which we find ourselves. In particular, I think there are a lot of analogies between our situation and the situation of the Israelites after they were exiled from their land. The situation of the Israelites 
in exile and our situations are analogous in, in many ways. What was Israel's exile? Well, after generations of increasing unfaithfulness, God finally sent pagan invaders to enslave and exile His people from their land with the result that the Israelites had to learn how to live faithfully in the midst of empires that were often very hostile to them and to their faith. Now, our exile is cultural rather than geographic, and in ultimate sense, we can never be exiled because we're in Christ, and Christ isn't going to be exiled. But we have been exiled, you could say, from positions of cultural influence and power in our country. And so like the Jews, we must begin to learn how to function and how to live under anti-Christian rule. Like the Israelites, this means we have to trust God and wait patiently. We know that God desires to save the nations. That God's ultimate purpose is for all the nations to be discipled. And so we know that will happen. America or whatever nation takes our place will be re-discipled and re-Christianized. Jesus will inherit the nations as King of kings and Lord of lords. Uh, T.S. Eliot says that Western civilization, he actually said this about a generation ago, but it's more true now than when he said it. He said, the world is trying to be civilized without being Christian. And he says, that is an attempt that will fail. And as we await its collapse, we have to ready ourselves to rebuild and renew civilization through the faith. And that's where we find ourselves. We know that God has promises, things He's going to do, things He's going to accomplish in history. We're waiting for God to do those kinds of things. But what do we do in the meantime as we find ourselves in this kind of situation? It seems that God is chastening us just as He chastened Israel with exile. And so what do we do? How do we live in a hostile post culture. You know, in our own nation's history, how was our nation founded? We were founded largely by Christians who fled Europe in order to colonize this part of the world, largely out of a desire for religious freedom. Now that those freedoms are being threatened, now that those freedoms are being eroded, what are we to do? Well, I think we can learn a great deal from the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These three Israelite young men who were taken off to Babylon, enrolled in the Babylonian university, and then became officials in the Babylonian empire under King Nebuchadnezzar. What I want to do is give you an, an overview of this story in Daniel 3 so you'll understand what's going on here. And then I want to draw out a series of lessons, hopefully four lessons we can draw out here that will help us understand what this story means for us. What's going on in Daniel 3? Well, in the immediate previous chapter, Nebuchadnezzar has had a dream. He had a dream of a great statue with a gold head and a silver chest and bronze legs and clay feet. And then in his dream, that statue was smashed by a rock cut without human hands, and that rock grew to fill the earth. And Daniel explains to him what the dream means. The four parts of the statue represent different kingdoms that are going to arise in succession in history. So King Nebuchadnezzar's empire is it's golden, it's glorious, it's, it's great, but it's not going to last. It's going to be succeeded by other empires in history. But all of those empires will be outdone by the kingdom of God when it breaks into human history. Now because Daniel was able to interpret this dream... 
Nebuchadnezzar promoted Daniel and his three friends to positions of rule in the empire. But when we come to Daniel chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar seems to have forgotten the meaning of the dream. Or perhaps he's choosing to defy the dream and is basically saying, I can make my kingdom last forever. There won't be another kingdom after mine. Mine will be the greatest and eternal kingdom. And so he builds this statue not just with a head of gold, but the whole thing is of gold. This 90 foot tall statue. And then he gathers all his administrative bureaucrats in the kingdom for the dedication of the image. And you have this sevenfold list of administrators. And that sevenfold list is actually repeated again and again, I think, for comedic effect. I think because it's kind of funny because it shows us how ridiculously pretentious Nebuchadnezzar is. And then a herald says, when the music begins to play, everyone must fall down and worship the gold statue King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And we have a sevenfold list of the instruments that are going to play. And again, I think it's for comedic effect. Again, to show us how ridiculously pretentious the king is. And the herald adds, anyone who doesn't fall down and worship will be thrown into the fiery furnace. Well, the music begins to play, and we find out that everyone bows down except for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Well, some of the king's men, it seems driven by jealousy, come forward to let King Nebuchadnezzar know that these three Jews have disobeyed and disregarded his word. And Nebuchadnezzar becomes outraged. And so he has the three Jewish men brought before him. And he gives them a second chance to bow. And he says, if you don't, you'll be cast into the fiery furnace. And what God can save you from my hands? The three men still refuse. They say, we don't even need to answer you in this matter. They say, the God we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. But if not, let it be known that we do not serve your gods and will not worship the golden image you have set up. Those words, but if not, this is just a little side note. They were used at a crucial moment in World War II. I can't give you that story here this morning, but look it up. It's very interesting. Well, Nebuchadnezzar now is even angrier. And so he has the furnace heated up seven times hotter than usual. In fact, it's so hot that his servants who go to throw these three men in are going to be consumed in the flames themselves. The three men are bound. They are put in the furnace. But as Nebuchadnezzar looks into the furnace, he sees a fourth man in the fire with them. A fourth who looks like the Son of God. And he can tell the men are not being destroyed by the flames. And so he calls them out. He calls out the three men. They come out of the furnace and they don't even smell like smoke. The only thing missing is their bonds. Their clothes, their official garments are still intact. And suddenly Nebuchadnezzar has this realization. He sees there is a God who can deliver from his hand. He says, blessed is the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He has delivered his servants who trusted in him. And so therefore... The king passes what you could call an anti-blasphemy law. Anyone who blasphemes or speaks against the God of the Jews will be cut in pieces like a sacrifice. Because he has tried to tear down God's house, his house will be torn down and left in an ash heap. Nebuchadnezzar says this is because no other God can deliver like this. And then he promotes the three Jewish men to an even higher position. It's a kind of death, resurrection, exaltation sequence for these three men. Having passed through the fiery furnace, they not just get their old position back, but they are exalted. 
That's the story. Let's start to tease out some of the lessons that are here. The first lesson that must be understood is this. This is a contest of worship. This is a liturgical contest. You know, In the Bible, you have different kinds of contests. You have power contests, like when Moses does plagues and Pharaoh's magicians, his court magicians, cannot match them. It's a contest of power. Sometimes you have wisdom contests, like when Joseph and Daniel do what the other wise men cannot, and they reveal and interpret dreams as no one else can. And then you have liturgical contests like this one. Nebuchadnezzar here, what is he doing in this chapter? He's leading a counterfeit worship service with himself as a kind of counterfeit high priest. His statue is a kind of counterfeit temple. It's a false ladder to heaven, a false connection point, a false bridge between heaven and earth. He uses music, just as there was music that the Levites would play during worship ceremonies at the temple in Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar has his orchestra play. His furnace is a kind of altar to consume sacrifices. And of course, the people are called on to bow. That's their act of reverence, their act of worship. And at the conclusion of the story, Nebuchadnezzar says that the three men have frustrated his word because they would not worship any god except their own. And so Nebuchadnezzar certainly understands the real issue here is worship. This is a battle of the gods. Whose god is worthy of worship? Whose god is worthy of service? This is really important for us to understand. I think it is easy for us in an exilic kind of situation to think that our main issues are political. That if we could just get things fixed politically, everything else would fall into place. But actually, our political problems are just symptoms of deeper problems which are really spiritual and liturgical. And so our first priority as an exilic community is not trying to get the right man elected or the right laws passed. Oh, sure, it'd be great to get Roe or Obergefell overturned. It'd be great to get laws on the books that strengthen protections for religious freedom. And it's great to work for those kinds of laws. We ought to be engaged in politics just as we ought to be engaged in education and entertainment and the arts and media and mercy ministry. We ought to be engaged in our culture. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were certainly deeply engaged in Babylonian culture and indeed in Babylonian politics. So exile certainly doesn't mean surrendering culture or withdrawing from politics. Go get involved in the political process, but don't lose sight of what is central. Let's not imagine that we can fix America through politics. The church does not exist to promote particular political candidates or particular pieces of legislation. The church exists to worship Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords and to promote His rule in the world. The main way we will affect change in our culture is not through politics, but through liturgy, through faithful worship. Prayers and psalms are far more potent weapons than ballots and bills. In fact, my fear at the present moment, my my biggest fear is not how can we make America more like the church. My biggest fear is how can we keep the church from becoming more like America? Because that's really our problem. That's our issue. 
So that's really the first lesson here. These three men will render to Nebuchadnezzar what is Nebuchadnezzar's, but they will not render to Nebuchadnezzar what is the Lord's. The Lord alone is to be worshipped. And our worship, when we say no to the idols of our culture, and we say yes to worshipping the Lord alone, our worship becomes a witness. A witness to the truth. Our worship becomes a form of mission. And with this understanding in view, we can see how really exile doesn't need to be seen as a step backwards. It can actually be a step forwards because it provides us with new opportunities to witness we did not have before. See, what do all these cultural shifts in our culture mean right now? It really means that the two sides engaged in this liturgical battle are clarifying themselves. The battle lines are being more clearly and sharply drawn than before. That squishy, moderate, semi-Christian American middle is going away. And to it we can say, good riddance. That kind of skin-deep Christian faith didn't do anybody any good anyway. But that squishy middle going away does not mean we've lost. It just means we have new opportunities. New opportunities for mission. New opportunities to invite outsiders into the worship of the one true God. New opportunities to show the emptiness and the bankruptcy of the idols people are turning to in our culture. That's the first lesson. The first lesson. This is a liturgical contest. A liturgical battle, to be waged through the weapons of worship. The second lesson is this. A church in exile has to learn to practice dual citizenship in new ways. We know these three men as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but those were not actually their given names. Those are the Babylonian names that were given to them when they were carried away from their homeland of Judah. Back in chapter 1, we're given their Hebrew names. Shadrach was actually Hananiah. Meshach was Mishael. Abednego was Azariah. be interesting to look at what these names mean, but I'm going to pass by that, and I just want to point this out. These men have two sets of names to represent their two identities or their two citizenships. They are both Israelites and Babylonians. They are members of God's covenant and citizens in a pagan empire. Now the point is, we find ourselves in precisely the same situation. You may not have two names, a Christian name and an American name, but you do have two citizenships. You are a citizen of the USA and you are a citizen of the kingdom of God. And the question we have to resolve for ourselves is, how do these two citizenships relate to each other? But I think to answer that question, we have to look at another question, and it's this. What do you think Nebuchadnezzar was seeking to accomplish with his counterfeit liturgy? Remember, Nebuchadnezzar created a huge empire out of conquering various peoples, nations, and languages. In fact, that's called attention to again and again in the story. This was the largest and greatest empire in history to this point. The herald commands people to bow down to the golden image. The people are identified as a diverse group of people's nations and languages. That's called attention to in the story again and again. And of course, part of the point is this. These people, all these different nations, languages, people groups, they all had different religions. All these different peoples serve their own gods. 
And for anybody who's trying to run an empire, that's a real problem. To have people who have loyalties to different gods. There's a saying common among historians, religious passion destroys social peace. When you get a lot of passionate believers in different religions together, and, and they're forced to mix together in a society, they often end up at each other's throats. Now Nebuchadnezzar knows this. And so the challenge for him is how can he create peace in his empire? Well, his strategy is this. He's going to let people continue worshiping their own gods, but he is going to assimilate them into a Babylonian civic religion. And that is really the point of the golden statue. By bowing to it, people don't have to forsake their gods. They can continue to worship those gods, they just have to acknowledge that their highest loyalty will now be to the empire, to the state. That's what the statue means. I think really the music that's played serves the same purpose. Music has the power to unite people. Music can form bonds between people. Music forms community. Music forms society. Think about how, when the Star Spangled Banner is played before a sporting event, what that does. It creates a sense of oneness. We're all Americans. It's unity through music. Well, Nebuchadnezzar's sevenfold orchestra was probably playing the Babylonian national anthem. He's using music to create unity. Nebuchadnezzar is thinking, one statue, one people. One music, one people. This is how he will hold his empire together. This is how he will knit all these different people groups together. It is really interesting in the story that we are never given very much detail about the statue. Is it a statue of Nebuchadnezzar? Is it a statue of a Babylonian god? We're not told. It's an unknown god, really. It doesn't matter who this god is as long as this god provides the glue that is needed to hold the diversity of the Babylonian empire together. That's what's going on here. Well, let's talk about our own situation. You know, America, like Babylon, has a civic religion as well. Our founding documents and our present-day political leaders like to talk a lot about God. There's a lot of God language in our politics. Our political rulers will regularly invoke God's name. Our money says, in God we trust. Our Pledge of Allegiance says we are one nation under God. The question for us as Christians is, what God is this? Now, I think at America's founding, and indeed for much of our history, Americans would have had no problem in general identifying the God of America with the God of the Bible. But not anymore. The God of American civic religion has changed. If Just think about this. Run a, a thought experiment. If a congressman were to stand up in the Capitol building today and propose that we amend the Pledge of Allegiance. So instead of saying one nation under God, it will now say one nation under the Lord Jesus Christ. How do you think that would go? Or what if he proposed that changing in God we trust on our money to in the Trinity we trust? What do you think would happen? I don't think it would go over to you. See, the unknown God of American civic religion is acceptable precisely because He is unknown. Precisely because He is unidentified. And so that God, the God of our money and the God of the pledge, really can play the same role as the bald eagle. 
a nice national mascot to make us feel better about ourselves. But He doesn't make any claims on us. But that is to say, the God of American civic religion, the American God, is an idol. We might as well be bowing to a golden statue. Now what does this mean for us? Let me come at this with yet another question. Are these three Jewish men, are they good citizens? How would you assess their citizenship? Are they good citizens or not? I would say really yes and no. Yes, they're good citizens in that they are faithful servants of their king. In fact, when challenged, they say, we don't need to answer ourselves. We don't need to give you an answer in this matter. Because apparently their records of service were flawless. That's why they had such high positions to begin with. They were seeking the peace and well-being of the empire as much as possible. They were good citizens in that sense. But we have to answer that same question, no, if being a good citizen means that your highest loyalty is to the state or to the state's civic religion or to the state's God. In that sense, these three men were bad citizens. What we have to say is that heavenly citizenship is higher than earthly citizenship. Citizenship in God's kingdom always trumps citizenship in an earthly nation. That is to say, for these three men, their Hebrew identities, their Hebrew names, their covenantal identities went deeper and were more fundamental to how they acted than their Babylonian identities and their Babylonian names. And it must be the same for us as well. We must be Christians first and Americans second. And when America's ways are at odds with God's ways, we must be willing to be bad Americans so that we can be good Christians. Think about it. Think how people are speaking ill of Christians right now. If you think that a woman does not have the right to choose to terminate the pregnancy in her womb. If you think that a homosexual couple should not have the right to enter into that institution we call marriage, you're going to be considered a bigot. You're going to be considered a bigot in American society today. The question is, can you handle that? Can you handle that heat? When the whole world around us is bowing down to the golden statue. Will you remain standing? Will you stand tall because you stand on the truth of God's Word? When everybody around you is bowing to the idol of statism, when everybody around you is bowing to the God of sexual autonomy, will you stand tall? Are you willing to be the loyal opposition, to remain faithful in exile? See, to do this, you must know your identity in Christ. You must know your identity in the covenant community. You've got to know who you are. You've got to know your story. You've got to know your future. And then you can stand tall and refuse to bow to the idols when everybody else around you is falling over themselves to fall before these false gods. And that really brings us to our third lesson here, which is civil disobedience, or what you could also call respectful defiance. When idolatry is mandatory, disobedience becomes mandatory. Now understand, normally the Bible commands obedience to the powers that be. In a normal situation, piety and patriotism don't have to be at odds with each other. 
And so 1 Peter 2 says, Submit to the governing authorities of man for the Lord's sake. Peter says, Honor the king. But then there are also clearly limits put on that submission. No human authority is absolute. And when any human authority commands sin, when they contradict divine authority, then as the apostles say in Acts 5, we must obey God rather than men. Because there is a king above every earthly king. There is a court above every supreme court. There is a judge above all human judges. These three men know that, and that's why they disobeyed this command to bow to the idol. Certainly there were Jews all around them who were bowing down, who were just going with the flow. These men refused. They will be faithful to God even if it costs them their lives. Scripture is littered with examples of people who disobeyed the governing authorities for the sake of being faithful to God. Think of the Egyptian midwives who, who lied to Pharaoh rather than murder those Jewish baby boys. And they were right to do so. They knew that Pharaoh had absolutized what is relative. He only has relative authority. When he absolutizes it, he becomes totalitarian and he must be disobeyed. You've got plenty of examples of that in Scripture. We've got plenty of examples of that in our own nation's history. Think of Harriet Tubman who defied the Dred Scott decision and the Fugitive Slave Act in order to obey Deuteronomy, which says if a slave runs away, don't return it to its master, to his master. And so she defied a Supreme Court decision. She defied the Fugitive Slave Law because she saw them as contradicting the Scriptures. We've got many examples of this in our own nation's history. Now, thankfully, civil disobedience is rarely required. But when it is, when that clash comes, it is crucial for God's people to be ready to act with courage and conviction. We must be obedient rebels. We must not lose our nerve in the moment of decision. These three men didn't run and hide. They didn't seek to escape their culture. They were as fully engaged in their culture as possible. But they engaged without compromise. They were carrying out that Jeremiah 29 program. They settled in Babylon. They were seeking the peace of the city. They're living the way 1 Peter says to live as exiles who abstain from fleshly lusts, who live honorable lives among the pagans. And yet, precisely because of their faithfulness, they literally stand out. They do not fit in because they live for the glory of the true God. And when they are challenged on that, they don't get angry and they don't get anxious. They just entrust themselves to God. And they remain faithful in the midst of a hostile culture. They face a test of loyalty and they pass it. And God ultimately blesses them as a result. That really brings us to our last lesson. Exile means suffering. It means we must brace ourselves and prepare ourselves to suffer. These three men were bound and cast into the fiery furnace. We will often suffer because of our faithfulness to Christ as well. That's something we're really not used to in American history. Christians haven't had to suffer very much for being Christians in our culture. That's changing. 1 Peter 4 says, don't be surprised at the fiery trial. 
Gee, I wonder what story Peter has in mind. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial which awaits you as though something strange was happening. But the question for us is how can we endure these fiery trials with faithfulness and with joy? Well, when, we, when these men are thrown into the furnace, what happens? God actually uses the fiery trial for their good to free them. Their bonds come off and they're set free in the fiery furnace. And it matures them. They come out and they're promoted to a position of greater glory. It was a kind of death, but it was followed by resurrection and exaltation. The only thing that burned up in the furnace were their bonds. And when they come out, they're glorified. They're given greater power and glory precisely because they've been faithful. Their willingness to die their willingness to play the part of a martyr becomes a weapon that leads them to victory. But what we need to know is what sustained them in this trial. You know, I think the real miracle here took place before they even entered the furnace. The real miracle is not in the furnace, it's before the furnace. It's when they say, they look Nebuchadnezzar in the eye and they say, we don't know if we're going to live or die. What we do know is that we will worship God and not your idol. Their faith was already fireproof before they were cast into the furnace. When they said, we don't know if God will deliver us from death or through death, they were showing their faith. They said, it doesn't really matter. All that matters is that we honor God. We don't care if we live or die. Even Nebuchadnezzar realizes this is why they've been delivered. They were delivered because they trusted their God. They lived by faith even in the furnace. Hebrews 11.34 says, By faith the saints quenched the violence of fire. They were saved by faith. They depended on God. They entrusted themselves to Him. And how did God save them? God saved them by coming to them in the midst of the flames. God fulfills the promise He made to His people in Isaiah 43. Where God says, when you pass through the flames, I will be with you. You will not be burned. For I am the Lord your God. Nebuchadnezzar, this pagan king, is amazed by this. He says, what God can save like this? No other God saves like this. Like what? What does he mean by that? How does God save in this situation? He's saying no other God delivers His people from fiery trials by entering into the flames of fire Himself. Nebuchadnezzar had seen plenty of gods in his day, but he had never seen a God who went into the furnace of affliction with His people. A God who saves His people by suffering with and for His people. A God who is a suffering Savior. There's that fourth figure Nebuchadnezzar sees in the furnace. One like the Son of God. The Son of God does not save them by extinguishing the flame. He endures the flame on their behalf. In fact, I think that's the reason why the three Jews were not hurt. Not even singed. They didn't even smell like smoke when they came out. It's because that fourth man in the fire, the Son of God, absorbed all the heat for them. And so He shielded them in the moment of affliction. See, we need to know when suffering comes as it will, the Son of God is with us. 
And we need to know he will protect us because he has already suffered the fires of hell for us on the cross. And so now we can continually entrust ourselves to him. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. God with us in our trials. And that's why when we as Christians suffer, we don't need to play the victim card. That's so pathetic to whine like victims. Even in our suffering, we can be joyful and triumphant because we know this truth. You know, in the world today, Christians are persecuted far more than any other group. And again, we've been spared of much of that. We have brothers and sisters in other parts of the world who have suffered a great deal and continue to suffer. But when that suffering comes here, will you be ready? Will you trust God? Are you willing to go into the furnace? The only way you can be willing to do that, to go there, is to know that God is with you. I trust we will do that. Theodore Beza, Calvin's successor in Geneva, said the church is an anvil that has worn out many a hammer. They can beat on us and beat on us and beat on us. They can drive us into catacombs and caves. But we will not go away. We will be victorious. In fact, if you go a chapter ahead in the book of Daniel, you find at the end of the next chapter, Daniel finally converts Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar becomes a God-fearer. And he turns his kingdom into a theocracy. Daniel and his friends are victorious because they were willing to suffer. See, America is an experiment. The church is a certainty. Sooner or later, the gates of hell will prevail against America. But they will never prevail against the church. God can accomplish His purposes with or without America. But we know He's going to use His church. In times like these, I think it's so important for us to understand this. It may be hard to be a Christian in exile. It may look like we've lost, like we have been defeated, like it's all a lost cause. But I love what G.K. Chesterton said. Our attitude needs to be like his. Chesterton said one of the greatest thrills in life is to fight a losing cause and not lose it. And that's our hope. That's our promise. Chesterton said hope only becomes a virtue when things are hopeless. That's when hope is a virtue. He said faith is a perpetually defeated thing that always outlasts its confidence. Time and time again, they've said the church has gone to the dogs and it was always the dog that died and the church that lived on. And that's what this means. That's our hope. A rock-solid hope we can stand on even when the rest of the world around us is bound. Let's pray. Father, we do give you thanks and praise for the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. May he reign supreme over all. May we acknowledge his reign over all things. And may we point others to him as the one who must be worshipped. This we pray in his name. Amen.